Father, I pray this morning that as we uh, come to this last of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, that you would, uh, you would enable us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, uh, particularly this church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the gospel. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart, and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. And amen. Let's see. If you're visiting for the first time, we are looking... I'm still getting a lot of uh, echo and feedback or something. If you're, if you're visiting for the first time... We're looking at the book of Revelation, and if you were here on the first Sunday or two, uh, you'll remember that I told you, I basically decided to preach the book of Revelation on a whim. In other words, my wife and I were watching the Discovery Channel, actually I was, she was reading, and it was about the Mayan calendar, something like that, and I put the television, I paused it and looked over and I said, I'm preaching through Revelation. And she said, that's nice, honey, like what do you want me to do with that? And I said, you know, basically I want to beat the Mayans to the end of the world. And so I started, but it, it's, it's, on one hand, it's been very exciting. On the other hand, once I got into it, it was much more complicated than I thought it would be. So be careful what you say you're going to do. You know, what I was reminded of this morning, we've looked so far at the first, almost the whole three chapters. This morning we're looking at the last of the seven churches in Revelation. And as I was preparing this week, I felt like I did as a kid at the beach so I grew up in Florida, and in Florida, basically the beaches, at least where I lived and where my wife grew up, the, the water is pretty shallow for a good ways, you know, maybe 100 yards, 200 yards. You could see it's sort of light blue, and then at some point you can see it all of a sudden is dark out in the distance. And what it is, is the water is, it, may, it might be a foot and a half or two or three feet deep for 200 yards, and then all of a sudden it just will drop off. It's called the shelf. So if you're a parent and you take your kids to the beach in Florida, you're constantly saying, come back from the shelf. That's all my mom probably hated going to the beach because all she did was spend her time saying, come back, come back. Because as a kid, you always want to get as close to the edge as you can. But the problem is if you're not a great swimmer and you go off of that edge, you funk, you go really deep. And as I was thinking about it, we, once you get out of the seven churches on Revelation, that's sort of like stepping off of that shelf. It's, it's a different uh, place altogether. And so... Uh, enjoy this morning. I'm not sure <laughs> what the rest of the year is going to be like, uh, but we've been looking at these seven churches at Revelation for the past, well, seven weeks or so. And remember, I've tried to give you some background on them, but I've also tried to give you a general background. If you remember in the book of Revelation, especially with these churches, they all had the, the same problem, more or less. Some much more, some much less. But the main problem they had is that their witness was suffering. They, they, they weren't either effective or they weren't even trying to have an effective witness of the gospel of Jesus outside of the church. And so what these letters do, among other things, is they admonish them and sometimes encourage them to be outwardly faced. That church isn't just about you. Church is about taking the gospel to other people. And so you need to be proactive in taking the gospel to other people. And we looked also at one of the things that, that keeps us from being outwardly faced is if we're not gospel-driven. And I talked about that last week. What does it mean to be gospel-driven? What it means to be gospel-driven is, on one hand, it sort of changes the way you read the Bible. 
that what you see in every book of the Bible is this thing called the gospel. In other words, every book of the Bible points us to the person and work of Jesus. But it also changes the way we live our lives. Instead of walking around, maybe if you're a Christian, saying, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Um, You walk around instead saying, what has Jesus done? Because to just ask what Jesus would do, you really never get a great answer because you don't know exactly what he would do. But if you know the New Testament at all, you can look back and say, there's exactly what Jesus has done. He has died for my sins. He has risen again. And because I have trusted him, I'm not only forgiven, but his righteousness is imputed to me. And because of what he's done for me, how should that affect my marriage? How should it affect the way I parent? How should it affect the way that I use my money or don't use my money? What, it, what should, it affects every area of life. So we looked at those two things. And there's one more that just so happens to be what I'm constantly harping on. You see, the, these churches needed to be outwardly faced. They needed to be gospel-driven. But it's hard to be outwardly faced and it's hard to be gospel-driven unless you are ultimately relationally focused. And there's a few things I want to get to about that. One, it means what it sounds like. Are you more focused on relationships or are you more focused on programs? Remember we looked, I think it was a church at Pergamon, great programs, but nothing going on on the inside. Just because programs are going well and you have high attendance in programs doesn't necessarily mean that good relationships are going on in there. And also, people, you need to be able to, to be in relationship in order to, to love and encourage one another and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You know, I ran yesterday. I've, I've been training for a marathon. I thought I ran, I set out to run three miles, and I thought my little run thing, which I hate, that I, I, every time I try it, it messes, I thought it was kilometers. And so I was running, and I, I thought, man, that's just such a slow time. And so I kept speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. And the reason I did that is my daughter was with me. I usually run alone. And I ran about a minute and a half per mile faster yesterday with my daughter. And I ran a mile and a half more. <laughs> By accident. Um, but why? And I, I, I wrote, you know, the upside of having a partner with you is they keep you from slacking off. The downside of having a partner with you, they keep you from slacking off, right? But if you have a partner with you, it's always easier. And that is, at some level, is why God gave us the church. A lot of people in the United States have an incredibly low view of the church. And if you read secular papers and things, I mean, the church is always getting a bad rap. But at the end of the day, the church is the thing that God gave us in order to facilitate our relational focus and relating with each other. If you look at the doctrine of the church, there's two basically things to consider. On one hand, there's the church universal. On the other hand, there's the church, what I'm going to call the church local. And by the church universal, I mean all Christians of all times in every place. And you know what, for me, just as a Christian and as a pastor, that's an important doctrine to me, to know that just because I'm a Presbyterian pastor, that there, there are other believers from other denominations out there, and, and they're also preaching the gospel and also taking the gospel to people. The problem is, is you can't be part of the church universal, really, unless you're ultimately part of the church local. In other words, I read a good line from a guy named Tim Savage this week. He said, the universal church is only as strong as its local manifestations are viable. In other words, you've often, I've met people before who said, well, you know, I'm just part of the, church, the, big, the greater church, but they're really not members of a local church. Remember all the letters that we looked at in the book of Revelation, how they end? They don't say, hear what the Spirit says to the church, general that just because I'm a Christian, I'm part of the church. They say, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
In other words, every church that we've looked at of these seven was a local congregation. There were people there who needed to hear the information. All the letters in the New Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, those were local churches. And if you weren't part of that local congregation, you wouldn't have gotten the information. You just wouldn't have. And so there's a lot more I could say about that, but I tell people all the time, if you don't join our church, you should join some church. Because only in the context of covenantal relationships can you really see the gospel worked out in your life. And you see that over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. So this morning, we're looking at this last church. Uh, it's this church at Laodicea. And Laodicea is not a name you hear that much on one hand. On the other hand, it w- might have been one of the most important churches, or at least one of the most important areas in the book of Revelation, in the ancient Near East, Asia Minor. Two things sort of defined the church at Laodicea, or the city of Laodicea. The first thing that defined them was their geography. The second thing that defined them really was their wealth. They were an incredibly, incredibly wealthy church. And geographically, they basically formed a tri-cities area with a city called Hierapolis and a city called Colossae. Have you heard of Colossae? The book Colossians was written to the city, the church at Colossae. In fact, they were so close to the city at Colossae, the, the city of Colossae, if you read the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, it says in there, Paul says, greet the brothers at Laodicea and make sure they read this letter. And then he says, and by the way, don't you forget to read the letter that I wrote to them. So they're about six miles away from Hierapolis, ten miles away from Colossae. That's, that geographical info is going to be important in a minute. They're also wealthy. They were uh, one of the major centers of banking in the uh, Asia Minor. In fact, they, they were such great bankers, oftentimes they would, at one point when there was a famine in Jerusalem, they sent 22 pounds of gold, unheard of, and they just sent it, and it didn't sort of affect them. They were known for not only uh, having big banks and big bank accounts, but having lots and lots of cash and treasure in those bank accounts. Also, they were known for being a place of fashion, They were the best dressed, if you will, in the Roman Empire. They would be uh, like Paris, if you will, during Fashion Week. They they had this wool that was uh, raven colored that they were famous for. So they're famous for money. They were famous for their fashion, being the best dressed in Asia Minor. And finally, they were famous for medicine. They had a big medical school there that focused on, among other things, ophthalmology which we don't think about people in the first century A.D. having an ophthalmology school, but they did. And among other things, they produced this salve made out of Phrygian powder, it was called, that was supposed to be able to heal almost any eye disease. So they're incredibly wealthy, they're incredibly well-dressed, and they had a big medical school that that particularly specialized in producing this salve for people's eyes. And if there's one word or one phrase that would describe uh, the, the city of Laodicea, it would be the fact that they saw themselves as being self-sufficient. I mean, brazenly so. And, and, and in fact, in 60 AD, the city of Laodicea was uh, crushed by an earthquake. It was completely leveled. And after they were completely leveled, the, Roman, the Romans came in and said, your city's been completely leveled. Let us help you rebuild it. And you know what they said? Thanks, but no thanks. We'll do it ourselves. You know how wealthy you would have to be to be able to tell the federal government, you know, we don't need any help. It would be like if Seattle was leveled by an earthquake 
and the, the federal government came in and said, let us help you with relief, let us help you rebuild, and people said, yeah, we got it. We don't want to be, holding, be beholden to anybody. Sort of the, 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 song, the theme song of the city, you know, might be uh, my way. As you walk down the street, you hear respect, the regrets, I've had a few, right? But because they did it their way. They were very proud of that. And the problem with the church at Laodicea is they acted just like the city in which they resided. And so what is Jesus going to say to this city? Look at verse 14. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. You know, this is the first letter. In all the rest of the letters, the first six, Jesus gives a description of, of sort of what he does. Right? I'm the one, give them the words of the one who walks among the lampstands. He's doing things. To the church at Laodicea, it's the first church that instead of saying, here are the words of him who does something, he tells us who he is. And he tells them who he is. And the first thing he says, you tell them that these are the words of the Amen. And the reason I gave you Isaiah 65 is a lot of people think that he's referring to that passage because in that passage you see twice God referring to himself as the God of truth. And in Hebrew the word truth is amen. And so what Jesus is saying here is that these are the words of the truth, but not just true words, but the, the person who embodies the truth. Remember John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you ask Jesus, tell me the truth, he says what? I am the truth. And so the church at Laodicea, why does he open up this way? Because he's going to say some hard things to the church at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea is the only church that he literally has nothing good to say about. And so what our, our normal reaction when people criticize us is what? It's to sort of be defensive and to, say, you know, to not buy it. And Jesus is opening up this whole thing by saying, I am the truth. My witness is faithful and true. In other words, so what I have observed is absolutely correct, and you can, you can believe that. And not only that, he says that I'm the beginning of God's creation. The word there is RK. And on one hand, it, it means the beginning in the sense that, the, that he set it into motion himself, but it also means he's the first one. Remember Colossians, which is in relationship with this church? He's called the firstborn from among the dead. He's called that in verse 5 of chapter 1, 2. In, in other words, he's the one through whom and to whom and for whom everything was created. So what he tells the church at Laodicea is he's telling them in order to get them with the program that he actually is set into motion. And he's trying to get them on board with what he is doing in the world, not what they want to do in the world, because what they want to do in the world, it seems like, is not much. So with that said, what does he say next? He makes a complaint against them in verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So this has been one of those passages that people have, have, don't know what to do with. Right? It's one of the most famous passages. Right? I want you either to be hot or cold or I'll spit you out of my mouth. But part of the reason people don't know what to do with it is because most people, when they read this passage, they just sort of moralize it. And we tend to think, what, that hot equals what, good? Cold equals bad? And Jesus would either have you be really good or be really bad, but don't be in the middle because that's not good. 
Because if you're in the middle, you know what he does? Makes him vomit. That's what the Greek says. In other words, whatever it is about the Laodiceans, Jesus is saying, the way you guys are doing right now, it literally, he's saying, it makes me want to puke. Now, what does he mean, though, when he says, I want you to be either hot or cold? Is he saying one is good and one is bad? Both are bad, both are good? What is he saying? If you've ever worked in a restaurant, you'll get this. Especially if you've ever been a waiter. I was a waiter in college, I was a waiter in seminary, and if you're a waiter in a restaurant, one of the first things that they drill into your head, that if the health inspector comes and asks you about your food, what do you say to him? Hot food, hot. Cold food, cold. That's it. If you can say that phrase, the health inspector will leave you alone. Why? Because if hot food is hot, that means the bacteria has been killed and it's hot, and the bacteria is still dead. If cold food is cold, that means the bacteria is not living and active, I guess. But as soon as the hot food starts to cool down, then things can start to grow and it gets a little bit yucky. As soon as cold food starts to warm up, then things can begin to grow and it gets a little bit yucky. So there's a sense in which, even in our own world, it's good to be both hot and cold, depending on the situation. And what Jesus is saying here, probably, is that he wants you to be either hot, that's a good thing, or cold, that's a good thing, but don't be lukewarm or else I will vomit. Now this is where the geography comes into play. And this is also where, you know, as years go on and you, know, you, you see in you know, National Geographic, they make different discoveries. That As discoveries go on, as we get older, at least me, we find out different things. And one of the things we found out about the geography of Laodicea. Remember, it's in this triangle. That basically, the city of Hierapolis and the city of Colossae were famous for two things. The city of Hierapolis was famous for having hot springs. In fact, they were, they were so famous that they were considered to be medicinal. And people would travel from all over to the city of Hierapolis to bathe in the hot springs in order to be healed. In other words, it was, it was a healing place. On the other hand, the city of Colossae was famous for its cold, crystal clear drinking water. And if you're, you know, in the first century in Asia Minor, having cold drinking water, having clear, clean drinking water is important. It was known as a very refreshing place. On the other hand, Laodicea, nothing. In other words, Laodicea as a city had two weaknesses. It had a lot of strengths because it was a trade route. But the two weaknesses it had, one was that it was prone to earthquakes, and the other is that it had no natural water supply. And so they had to pipe in their water from this place called Dinzali, I believe, through aqueducts from hot springs. And so by the time any water got to the city of Laodicea, it was always lukewarm. To the extent that it would make some people, guess what, throw up. So they would dip the water and they think, oh, this is going to be great, refreshing water, and they taste it, and they would spit it out of their mouth. What, Jesus, what is Jesus getting at here then? Probably something like this. I want you to either be as a church, I either want you to be like Hierapolis, or I want you to be like Colossae. At least the way their water is. I want your church to be either a place of healing and a place of rest, or I want your church to be a place of refreshing. But your church, Laodicea, is neither. It's not a place where people go and they are healed. And it's not a place where people go and they are refreshed. And that's probably because the Christians at Laodicea really didn't think that much about the gospel. 
Ask yourself that about our church. If, if you had to evaluate our church, you know, with an anonymous card, which ask yourself, would, is our particular church, is it a place of healing for people? A few, maybe. But is it known for that? How about, is it a place of refreshing? Do people from the outside say, you know, I'm not even a Christian, but I just love going there because I just feel so refreshed in my spirit when I go. And people who are Christians just can't wait to come back. You see, the lukewarm church is a church that is just, we've talked about this, going through the motions. They have great programs. They have great children's ministries. They have great, maybe, music. They might have a great, their budgets are all in line. Everything is perfect, but nothing is really going on. And what keeps a church from actually being healing or a church from being a place of refreshing, in my experience, usually, is because the church is afraid of sin. They're afraid of sin because sin is messy. And so when you begin to deal with sin and sinners, things become pretty messy. And so in order to do that, you just sort of act like it's not there. And you act like, I'm okay, you're okay, and we all go through the motion, and no one ever really gets changed. But if you really believe that sin is this hard, big, nasty thing, then you also know that sin needs a big, hard remedy, which is the person and work of Jesus. You see, what Jesus takes them is he says, you're lukewarm. You're not, you're not fulfilling your role as a church. And so the next thing he does is he basically diagnoses why that is for them. In verse 17, he says, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So, Fancy that. The church apparently says the same thing as the city in which it resides. That what they say about themselves is that they're rich. Look at, look at how much God has blessed us. We've prospered. Look at a great sanctuary we have. Look at great programs. Look what great things we have. God must be blessing us. Jesus says, you say that. You say that I need nothing, but in reality, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, naked, blind. In other words, you're self-deluded, he tells them. I've told you before about my friend Hal in Athens, Georgia. He says things all the time. I think I still, he probably said this to me 10 or 15 years ago. I still think about it all the time. He just looked at me out of the blue one time and said, Tommy, you're self-deluded. You think you'd know it. Think about that. If you're self-deluded, do you think you would know it? You wouldn't. And what Jesus is saying here to the church at Laodicea is you are self-deluded. You think that you are, you are rich. You think that you need nothing, but in fact, you need everything. And then he levels this, this uh, in some sense, heartbreaking charge against them, in some sense, horrific charge against people who put a lot of stock in how much money they had and how much clothing they had and how good their, their medical facilities were. Because what does he say to them? He says that their first... His view of them is that they're wretched and pitiable. In other words, you think that you're pretty squared away and you think you have your act together, but the way I see you is wretched. You're not, in fact, not, Jesus, not only am I not proud of you, I pity you. And the reason I pity you is because you're poor, blind, and naked. Now, why is that accusation so important? Remember what they, put their, they, what they relied on, what they were so famous for. They were famous for their banking, they were famous for their clothing, and they were famous for their ability to heal people's eyes. And what does Jesus say to the very people who boast of that? 
You think you're rich? You're not. You're poor. You think you're well-dressed? Uh-uh. Naked as a jaybird. You think you could see? You're blind. And so he diagnoses them, but then he gives them a treatment. He suggests a treatment. Verse 18, he opens up by saying, I counsel you to buy from me. Now what's interesting is there's almost a note of sarcasm here because it's not really a command. Or it's not a forceful command. It's more like if you've been in the military, at least the unit I was in, that if someone came up to you who outranked you and said, Ranger Allen, if I were you, I'd probably shine those shoes a little better before the next formation. Well, I would hear that, and I would know what that meant, is I need to immediately go back to my barracks room, and I need to shine my shoes or else I'd be in a lot of trouble. But they would never just order me. They'd say, you know, if it was me, you take your chances if you want. That's what Jesus is sort of saying here. He said, you know, let me give you a little advice. Here's my advice for you who think you have everything, who think you are rich, who think you are well-dressed, who think that you can heal anything. He says, first of all, he says, buy from me gold refined in fire so that you may be rich. And the language when he says buy from me, that's the language of the marketplace that he's using. And so he's talking to business people, like a business person. He says, here's what you guys need to do to get better. What you need to do is you actually need to buy from me gold that has been refined in fire. That'll make you rich. Now, if you're a smart lady to see, and you're thinking to yourself, well, how can we buy gold from you when we don't have, you just said we don't have anything. How can we buy anything from you? And at that point is when Jesus would say, that's my point. You don't have anything. In other words, how can you buy from Jesus if everything is by grace? The way you buy from Jesus if everything is by grace is you receive. You're passive. In other words, the way that, that we become rich is by looking at everything we're going to be looking at this week, even, during Holy Week. The fact that Jesus went from being acclaimed as the King of Jerusalem, the King of glory, and lauded by everybody, and going all the way to betrayal on Thursday and crucifixion, on Friday. But the reason that you and I can become rich is because Jesus became poor. The reason that you and I will become exalted one day is because Jesus went all the way to the bottom. That at his cross, he paid the debt that you and I deserved. And because he paid that, we now can receive from him gold, if you will, refined in fire, the true riches. And gold refined in fire is always a sign of purification in the Bible. So we will have pure riches. But then he goes on and he says, Buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So he's telling the best dressed people in the Asia Minor, here's what would really be good. Here's my advice. Is to buy from me white garments so that you won't be ashamed and naked anymore. You see, you can wear an Armani suit and still be naked. You can wear a leather jacket and be naked. You can wear plaid and be naked. You can wear Birkenstocks and socks and still be naked, Jesus says. But what you need from me is these white garments. And remember in Revelation chapter 7, what made those garments white? The reason the garments are white is because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He says, wear this white garment that you may clothe yourselves and your shame may be covered. You see, that's an indictment in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the fact that you're naked and ashamed is an indictment of your sin. And Jesus says, what you need from me is the forgiveness of sins that comes through the shedding of my blood and these new white garments. 
sometimes called righteousness. More than that, he says, come and buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You know that stuff they're selling over at the temple of Asclepius? Bogus. If you really want to see things the way they are, you need to buy from me south so that you may actually see. Now, all of these things, by the way, are a message to the church. You see, this passage is church to lay the sins. It's sort of people cherry pick it and use it for evangelistic rallies and things like that as a message for someone who's not a Christian. You need to hear these things. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you're a Christian, you need to stop relying on your money. You need to stop relying on your own righteousness. You need to stop relying on your own ability to see things the way they are. And you need to buy from Jesus gold refined in fire, white garments, and salve for your eyes. In other words, that even if you're a Christian, you need to see things better. All of us don't see things the way they are all the time. And Jesus is saying, come to me and get those. And that's where he goes after he tells them how, how, does he, how he expects them to respond to this. Because he's just given them a pretty harsh admonition. At least they probably would have taken it that way. And what's the first thing he tells them after that? Something he doesn't tell the other churches. He tells them of his love for them, but he also tells them why he's doing it. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Now let me ask you that question. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that any discipline that you experience is because God loves you, not because he's upset with you? If you want to understand biblical discipline, let me read to you Hebrews 12, chapter 6 through 11. He says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons, and what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Let me read that again. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So why does God reprove them and discipline them? Reprove has to do with just the speaking part. Why does he say hard things to them? It's because he loves them. It's because he loves them. And yet, how do you and I feel? Every sort of every little tribulation and every trial that comes along the path, if you're like me, you just throw your hands up and say, nothing's easy. I'm tired of everything. I'm tired of how hard life is. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of that. God's probably saying, Tommy, I'm tired of your complaining. The reason I'm sending all this stuff is not because I don't like you. It's because I love you. The reason I discipline you is because you need it. You know, I've been through some really hard things in my adult life. In the church. I remember I have a friend, he's probably listening right now, or he'll be listening this week, Ron. He called me one time. He felt a little sheepish after I'd gone through some things. He said, I need to apologize, I think. And I said, what is it? He said, you know when you were in college in my ministry, I always thought you were a little bit cocky. So I prayed God would humble you. He said, I never expected this would happen. You know, I'm glad he prayed that. You can stop praying that way now, Ron, by the way, if you're listening. But I'm glad he prayed that. 
I couldn't have said that 10 years ago. I can say it now. The reason God disciplines us is because he loves us. The reason God tells us hard things is because he loves us. The reason he puts us through hard situations is because he loves us. We don't always see the things like he sees them, and we go by faith, but the reason he does it is because he cares, not because he doesn't care. And the last thing he tells them about his expectations is he says, I want you to be zealous and repent. He wants them, in that order, by the way, to be zealous and repent. And by the way, the, the root of that word zeal in Greek is the same word for boil. He says, all you lukewarm Christians, what I want you to do is I want you to boil. You only boil to the extent you realize that Jesus has given everything for you. You are only zealous to the extent you realize that he has washed you and made you whiter than snow. That he invites you. And the question is, will you let him? I watched uh, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? A couple weeks ago, probably for like the 50th time. I actually watched it one and a half times because it was on twice in a row. And my favorite part, remember Delmar goes to get baptized. And he comes up out of the water and said, Boys, the preacher done washed away all my sins. And his buddies give him a hard time and he says, Come on in, boys, the water's fine. And he just falls back and basks in it. You see, we tend to hear criticism and we tend to hear admonition as harsh. And what Jesus is saying is, I do this because I love you. And that's where he goes next because he actually gives them the good side of it. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You know that painting that's behind me, you see, it, I don't know if it's, they're, they're, basically the originator is a guy named Holman Hunt. And he painted a version, I think this is not the version, but there's so many versions of this, everyone attributes it to him. And I'm just going to be honest with you, it's bogus. It's very sentimental and we look at it because there's a sense in which we think of this, we say Jesus is just knocking at the door of my heart. When in fact Jesus is, if you're not a Christian here, and you feel that Jesus is moving in your life and you, that you need to do something, then trust him. Trust him. Put your faith in him. But you know, the picture is very famous because the knob is on the inside. And you've heard me say before about this picture. The problem with this picture is sometimes Jesus just lights a fire in the basement. Like if he wants the door open, the door is going to be open. Here, however, he's not speaking to the person who's not a Christian. He's speaking to the person who's in the church. He's just given them an admonition. He's just reminded them that the reason I'm telling you this hard stuff is because I love you. And then now he speaks to them, get this, as a lover. This is almost a, a word-for-word quote, quote from the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, where the lover stands outside and waits for it to be invited inside by his lover. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You see, the issue that Jesus is getting at here with the church and with people in the church is whether or not you're really going to let him in. You see, if he, wants, if he wants to get in, he gets to start a fire in the basement and you come running out and then he's got you. But in this particular case, he's sort of, it's almost like a test. He's saying, what are you going to do? What are we going to do with him? 
You see, the question that this poses is, will you let him in? And it doesn't mean necessarily for the first time, but it does mean with a lot of areas of your life. Ask yourself that. You willing to invite Jesus in while you're doing your financial planning? Jesus, come on in. See, oh, that's all my stuff. Tell me what you want me to do with it. Are you willing to let Jesus in when you talk about your marriage? Do you ever talk about your marriage? And when you do talk about your marriage, is Jesus in? Do you invite him in? Do you invite Jesus in to maybe talk about your parenting? Jesus, how do you think it's going? Every area of your life, are you willing to let him be involved? Are you willing to let him be Lord over it? That's really what this is getting to. But it's not a harsh be Lord over it, and it's not, a, it's not a barging in. You see, in the city of Laodicea, in about the year 85, the Romans came through, and for about 15 years, the Romans abused the city of Laodicea, and they were very, there was a lot of tension there. And one of the ways they abused them is that they would come in, and if you were a Roman, you could go to any person's house and knock on the door and just barge in and set up shop. And what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not like them. I'm not someone who's just going to come in and roll over you and take all your stuff. What I do is I stand at the door and knock and you invite me in and then I come in and eat with you and you with me. And in the ancient Near East, that was the primary way in which you actually either affected reconciliation or recognized reconciliation is to have a meal together. And Jesus says, that's what I want. And of course, this points to this great messianic feast coming at the end of the book of Revelation. And finally, he says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as, also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, on one hand, this is sort of taking us because chapter 4 is this picture of God on the throne. So it's, it's a transition there. But also something I want to point out, if you listen to secular news, if you listen to a lot of Christians, it's very interesting because what you often hear is that Jesus loves poor people and he does not like rich people. That Jesus has a special heart for the poor. But you rich people, ugh, all of you one percenters. Which, by the way, if you're an American, you're a one percenter. What's, what's he getting at here? What's the point I want to make here? It's just this, is that Jesus doesn't have a special heart for the poor. He cares about the poor, and he cares about the condition of the poor. In the whole Old Testament, he talks about justice for the poor. But his special heart is not for the poor, and it's not for the wealthy. His special heart is for sinners. And if you are a sinner, whether you are wealthy or whether you are poor, you are the one who conquers by holding fast to the words of Jesus. And you are the ones, whether you are rich or whether you are poor, who will sit with him in his, on his throne in glory. You see, sort of theology of the throne in, in the Bible, basically it starts out with God himself just being on the throne. And then by the time you get to the New Testament, God the Father and God the Son are on the throne. And what Jesus says here that for the person who trusts him, for the person that clings to him, I won't let you just sit there and then like get up, it's my turn. He says, you will sit there with me. So all of you at Laodicea who feel guilty, oh, I feel guilty because I've been so lukewarm, he says, be zealous and repent. And the question is, are you going to let him in? Are you going to let him in? Many of you know what happened to me uh, about a month ago at the airport as I was going to Ethiopia. I was going to Ethiopia. We, we, we lived over here, and I, was had to, I would often hear gunshots every now and then and when I would come by. And so at some point I got a retractable baton. I knew how to use it. And I had it in my backpack, and I forgot. 
and I went to the airport. I'm one of these kind of people who goes to the airport, and I think, you know, I'm gonna, this, it's going to be a lot easier on me if I just volunteer everything. So when, when I go through the line, I'm like, anyone, you guys want to search my bags? I trust you. Or when they say, sir, can we look in your bag? I say, of course. You want anything else? You want to look at my wallet? You got anything you want, you guys are here for my safety. Look in it. And so the guy pulls out, he takes my bag over, and he reaches down in my bag and pulls out this baton. He said, what's this? I said, I think it's a problem. <laughs> Within five units, I, the gang unit was there. Um, they, they were the only ones available, I guess. It wasn't just because it was me. And, you know, the gang unit came and asked for my ID, which I handed them to them underneath my business card. <laughs> but you know what? The, at the end of the day, I don't regret saying, look, look. What Jesus, the whole thing about the church of Laodicea, the question is, are you going to let him in? Are you going to say what Jesus says, you want to let me in? And you say, you know what, you can look at anything I have. And he reaches in and he finds this thing that shouldn't be there. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? It's an embarrassing thing, but at the end of the day, it's a good thing. Are you going to let Jesus sort of root through your bags? That's the question. Think about that. Let me pray for us. And I'll read this last line. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Father, I pray that you would uh, come and you would open our eyes where they're blind. I pray that you would clothe us where we are naked. I pray that you would make us wealthy where we are poor. I pray that you would uh, come and as a church, you would make us more and more outwardly faced, more and more uh, gospel driven, more and more relationally focused. I pray that you would uh, make us what you want us to be. And Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to take criticism hearts that are willing to look at your discipline and embrace it rather than scorn it. And I just pray that you would guard us as a church from the work of the evil one. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.